0: From CAFE and WNYC Studios, this is Stay Tuned. I'm your host, Preet Bharara.
1: If Putin and I went a few rounds, I don't actually believe he'd last a minute in the ring with me. The moment he got close enough to grab me, I would sidekick him in the
0: chest and we'd be done. That's my guest on the show today, Ben Wittes. So Ben has a lot of jobs. He's with the Brookings Institution. He has a very popular and important blog, the Lawfare blog, and he runs two podcasts, the Lawfare Podcast and also Rational Security. We had a fun and interesting conversation that ranged from whether or not Donald Trump should be impeached, to the details of the firing of Jim Comey, to what kind of taekwondo kick he would deliver to Vladimir Putin if he got the chance. That's coming up. But first, let's get to your questions. Hey, Pre, big fan here, calling from Seattle. Uh, I was wondering if you would be willing to address Cyrus Vance Jr. in the
1: Manhattan DA office and his relationship to Javanka
0: and also to Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein, however the hell you say his name. I'm sure there's some professional courtesy that you have to adhere to around talking about your former colleagues more or less, but this guy sounds like a real piece of work and sounds corrupt based on what I know from reading the newspapers and, uh kind of pisses me off as a, as a citizen, as a taxpayer, as a human being. Thanks, Preet. So thanks for the call. We've been getting calls and questions about this issue from all over the country, and not just New York, um, a bunch from Seattle, because that's where the district attorney at the center of this, Cyrus Vance, the Manhattan district attorney, where he used to live in Seattle. The call is about two different cases that have been much in the news lately. The first case that never proceeded that involved uh, alleged fraud on the part of Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr. relating to some property in the Soho part of New York. And the second case, which has gotten even more attention, allegation of groping by Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. So part of what is going on here is that Cy Vance raised money from people associated with both of those targets, from the lawyer Mark Kazowitz, who represented Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka, and then separately from someone who was associated with a lawyer for Harvey Weinstein, a very famous lawyer in America named David Boies. And let me say at the outset, I did my job as the United States attorney for a number of years. And lots of people would make comments or criticism about my decisions and our office's decisions not to bring a case. And I realized they didn't know what the facts were. They didn't know what the deliberations were in our office. And so with respect to whether or not I think some other prosecutor in some other office some years ago should have brought a case or not, I'm not in a position to make that judgment. I'm just not. Um, I wasn't the one who interviewed the witnesses. I wasn't the one who was in the grand jury. I wasn't the one who looked at what the physical evidence was. I wasn't the one who understood what the local law and standards were. And so I'm not going to begin at any point to personally second guess a decision of someone else. And as Sy Vance himself has said, what looks terrible in a newspaper article and what looks terrible on its face may not necessarily provide you enough evidence to be convinced of guilt or provable guilt. So, you know, So I don't know. I do agree, though, that from every available bit of evidence, at a minimum, Harvey Weinstein is a pig, disgusting, uh, abused his power, and by his own admission, did things he should not have done. And so with respect to him, whether or not the one case in New York should have been brought, I think the one good piece of news is every law enforcement agency, uh, local and perhaps federal, in the country that has some lead on one of these activities by Harvey Weinstein should be pursuing it. And often, it might be difficult to bring a case because time is your enemy and a lot of time has gone by and there's statute of limitations issues and recollections of witnesses and lack of corroborating physical evidence. But I would imagine that if a case can be brought, there are a lot of people looking at it now. And if one can be made, it should be made against Harvey Weinstein. I think one of the most important issues going on here is that people believe that decisions were made on the merits. And one reason that's being questioned here is that Cy Vance, because he's an elected district attorney and did what all elected district attorneys in the country that I know of do, they raise money. And some of the people they raise money from, naturally, are other lawyers. And some of those lawyers are criminal defense lawyers. And some of those criminal defense lawyers are people who will naturally have criminal cases pending in that office. And I think it's not unreasonable for people to question in the same way when a district attorney takes money from a criminal defense lawyer. Now, I've known Cy Vance a long time. I believe him to be an honorable and ethical person. We worked together on cases and we also fought about cases and who would you know, proceed with investigations in our own city and in Manhattan. But I do think that this issue brings to the fore an important reform point and that is district attorneys, even though it's difficult to say no to this kind of money, should not be in the business of taking money from criminal defense lawyers. It looks terrible. It can have a deleterious effect on public faith and how decisions are being made. I don't believe personally that Cy Vance altered a decision on a case because he got a $25,000 contribution from the likes of Mark Kazowitz. I don't. So in answer to your question, should the case have been brought? I don't know. Was the case decision made for corrupt reasons? I don't think so. And the reason for that is I think there's a difference between a prosecutor or a prosecutor's office having cold feet or engaging in a corrupt act. But I think the fundamental issue going forward, so we have more public faith in prosecutions and in rule of law and law and order going forward in all jurisdictions in the country, is there should be a movement to take away the ability of prosecutors to raise money in their elections from people who are gonna have business pending before their office, period. So this question is implied from a tweet by at Jamie Weinstein. It links to an article in the Washington Post by David Ignatius, that reports that last year in September 2016, President Erdogan of Turkey was in a private meeting with the Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, in which Erdogan demanded that I, Preet Bharara, the U.S. Attorney, be fired. So Jamie Weinstein in the tweet suggests, uh, quote, interesting piece for many reasons, not least because it subtly posits new theory for why Trump fired Preet Bharara. So why was President Erdogan the leader of a sovereign nation, talking to the vice president of our nation saying, you know, fire a local prosecutor in New York. And the reason goes back to a, a prosecution that is still pending in my old office, the United States versus Reza Zarab. Reza Zarab is an Iranian national, but Turkish resident, who is a gold trader and close associate of President Erdogan and a lot of his cronies, who we allege violated Iran sanctions to the tune of a lot of money. And President Erdogan has made it very clear that he's not happy about that case. He would like the case to go away, and presumably, the way he thinks business is done in his country can be how business is done in the United States. Uh, I believe that David Ignatius is reporting about the meeting with Joe Biden is true because I heard about it at the time. Now, to answer the implied question from the tweet, um, I have no basis to believe or know whether or not anyone you know has followed what President Erdogan wanted by firing me. First of all, it would be futile and useless because the next United States Attorney, June Kim, will be proceeding along with all the career prosecutors, investigators, and everyone else. But I do say it does raise some interesting questions. Given the relationship that President Trump has seemed to forge with the increasingly authoritarian leadership of President Erdogan, and by the way, the relationship that has been reported in many newspaper articles between fired general, national security advisor, Michael Flynn, and relationships he had with the government of Turkey, where presumably these kinds of conversations about the dismissal of our legitimate righteous case against Reza Zarab probably happened. And perhaps a discussion about the firing of the United States attorney there may have happened. I don't know what the truth is. I don't know what the consequences were of those meetings, but there's an interesting swirl of information that involves President Erdogan, Michael Flynn, this defendant Reza Zarab, and the Trump White House. So just one more thing about President Erdogan. This is a guy who actually has publicly accused me of visiting Turkey and helping foment the coup against his government. To my knowledge, I've never been involved in any coup. Not only that, I've never been to Turkey. The closest I've ever gotten to Turkey is stuffing on Thanksgiving. Let me ask you, uh,
1: my understanding is that the President of the United States has interviewed a number of candidates for... United States attorney positions around the country, including New York. Is that correct? I believe that's Yes, Uh, we've done quite a number, not there yet, not complete, but um, working through the the, uh, U.S. attorney
0: process. Isn't that quite unusual? So obviously that was not a question to me. That was a question posed by Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut to Attorney General Jeff Sessions yesterday at his oversight hearing. Now, Richard Blumenthal himself used to be the United States attorney and Jeff Sessions used to be the United States attorney and the question goes to whether or not the president of the United States is personally interviewing candidates for those U.S. attorney positions, the job that I used to have before I was fired. I can tell you um, it is highly unusual and probably really inadvisable for any president and particularly this president and particularly for the position that I used to have in the Southern District of New York given the jurisdiction it has – For Trump to be interviewing, personally, people for those jobs. I was never interviewed by Barack Obama. Richard Blumenthal was not interviewed by the president who appointed him, and Jeff Sessions was not interviewed by the president who appointed him. And there's a reason for that. As you know, if you've been listening to my podcast and hearing about the weird interactions that I had with Trump before I got fired, there needs to be some arm's length distance between the president and the political people in the White House and the effective, fair, and independent administration of justice in the field, which is done by United States attorneys all over the country. Now, it's perfectly lawful for the president to interview people that he appoints, but there's lots of things that are lawful but are yet stupid. And if you look at the testimony, it was not even, it's not even clear to me that Jeff Sessions even has a handle on whether or not the president himself is interviewing these people that normally was in, is in the purview of the attorney general to vet and recommend. It seems that the U.S. attorney candidates who Donald Trump is interviewing personally are the ones who will naturally have jurisdiction over his businesses and his real estate holdings. So here's what you've got. You've got the first president not to divest his personal holdings, the first president not to disclose his taxes, and now you've got a president personally interviewing the candidates who will oversee the offices that could possibly investigate him. Think about that. So we had a surprisingly fun conversation this week. It's with Ben Wittes, who arguably knows more about the situation with Jim Comey and his firing than anyone outside of Robert Mueller and his team. Coming up after the break. What's the number one sign of a bad home security system? A home security system that's so complicated, you never use it. That's exactly the type of security system Simply Safe has spent a decade fighting against. They believe that simple is safer. And it's exactly why Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your home 24-7. Order online with the click of a button. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician or salesperson has to come and disrupt your house. And you don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees or sign a two-year contract. Their 24-7 professional monitoring and emergency dispatch starts at 50 cents a day. That's a deal, considering that SimpliSafe was named Best Overall Home Security of 2020 by U.S. News and World Report. Head to simplysafecom slash Preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplisafe.com slash Preet to make sure they know that our show sent you. Ben Wittes, thanks for being on the show. I've been wanting to have you on for a long time, so thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to mention you have a, a podcast that everyone should listen to. You want to plug it? I have two podcasts. So We have uh, the Lawfare podcast, which is the regular weekly
1: and sometimes twice a week podcast of, of Lawfare. And we also produce Rational Security, which is a, a weekly show that I do with Shane Harris of The Wall Street Journal, uh, Susan Hennessy of Lawfare, and my wife, Tamara
0: Kaufman-Wittes. If you were a member of Congress today and the issue were to arise based on what we publicly know today, would you vote for the impeachment of Donald Trump?
1: I would, and I would do it without a sense of that being a radical step. And I would do it on the simple basis that the president... We leave aside the question of whether the president's interaction with his top law enforcement officer was a criminal act. I actually don't think that's a deeply important question unless you're uh, a criminal prosecutor. If you're evaluating it from an impeachment point of view, the relevant question is, is it an acceptable use of presidential power? Is it an acceptable fashion for the president to uh, engage with his law enforcement and intelligence apparatus? And here are the essentially uncontested facts. The president met with the FBI director early in his tenure and asked him for a pledge of loyalty. Uh, And you credit that? I see no reason not to credit it. I was aware of it at the time. Jim told me in general terms that it had happened when there was no controversy about it. And I have no doubt, whatever mistakes one thinks Jim made as a last fall in the Hillary Clinton email investigation or last summer, there is just no doubt that this is a person of honor and integrity. He has no history of lying. And I can't imagine a reason he would make this up about Donald Trump, particularly not in private conversations with me at the time. So for me, the question of Jim's uh, honesty and integrity is not—it's not really a question I'm prepared seriously to engage. It's um, So, number one, there's a loyalty oath dinner. Number two, there's a specific request to drop a public integrity and national security investigation against General Flynn. Number three, there are repeated calls— in which the head of the FBI felt pressured to take substantive actions in a pending law enforcement investigation. Number four, there is the apparently corrupt firing of the FBI director when he did not comply with those requests. And number five, there are Subsequent repeated threats to the Attorney General, the Deputy Attorney General, the Special Prosecutor. And I think when you put all that together, it is very hard to argue. That the president has behaved in a fashion that comports with the way the pres- we, we understand the president, the appropriate use of presidential authority vis-a-vis law enforcement. If I were a member of Congress, I don't need to know whether any of that violated the criminal law. All I need to know is that it's an abuse of power.
0: I mean, how, how far do you think he is prepared to go but for the absolute hardcore constitutional structural limitations on what he can do?
1: So I'm hesitant to answer that question because it involves looking into his soul. And what do you see when you look into his soul? Well, so first of all, I question whether he has one. But that's a a question that I'm not in a position really to have an answer to. I will say this. If you look at areas where he is genuinely unconstrained, his behavior is pretty consistently awful. And uh, the sexual assault arena is one, and it's big in the news these days because of Harvey Weinstein, but there are a a large number of women who have accused uh, Donald Trump of gross sexual misbehavior toward them. And what I would say is if you want to understand how he would behave in the absence of legal restraint As president, looking how how he behaves in the absence of legal restraint in other areas of his life when he doesn't fear consequences is not a terrible way to start answering the question.
0: Although, interestingly, it has been pointed out that he does lie on a regular basis at the podium and at rallies and television interviews. But on those occasions, when he is under oath in a deposition, he lies less. And
1: what I would say to that is... That puts a real premium on the constraints, because if you accept my point that this is somebody who, when he is unconstrained, gets Hobbesian real fast, and you accept your point that he is not entirely immune to the forces of fear of legal consequences, uh, then it puts a premium on what those consequences are and how much he has to fear them.
0: So let's talk about one of the ways in which he exercised basically unfettered power, although there's a dispute about this. And I'll ask you the question the way it's always asked to me, although I don't like this question uh, so much. And that is the president's firing of the FBI director, Jim Comey, in the circumstances in which he did it. And given the state of mind that he has said that he had at the time he did it, does that constitute obstruction of justice?
1: Well, I'm first of all. Let me answer it. Start by answering it the way you have answered it to the many. You're not people, allowed to do that <laughs> to the many people who have asked you this question, which is uh, obstruction of justice is a specific intent offense, and in order to answer the question of whether somebody committed obstruction of justice. The same words can be obstruction of justice or not, depending entirely on circumstance. The great example here is, that's a nice house you've got. It would be a shame if something happened to it. That is obstruction of justice if you're Don Corleone and the person is a potential witness. And it is an insurance salesman doing his job if you're an insurance salesman trying to sell somebody homeowner's insurance, right? and firing the fbi director is is a little bit like that it can it can be an obstruction of justice if you do it with the specific intent of corruptly interfering with a proceeding within the meaning of any number of uh, federal statutes or it can be an aggressive exercise of your uh, undisputed lawful presidential authority to staff the executive branch if you do it for other reasons. Now, in this case, Trump has made comments that uh, raise questions about where on that specific intent spectrum that he is. Um, he did make this very peculiar remark to Lester Holt on on national television about the Russia investigation being on his mind at the time that he did it. He also, according to The Washington Post, uh, blurted out to the Russian foreign minister in the Oval Office, taking a break from dispensing information about highly classified intelligence programs to say that he'd gotten rid of the FBI director who was a nut job and he'd reduced a lot of pressure on himself in the course of doing so. And all of that would raise a reasonable inference in my mind, in the minds of any prosecutor, that maybe an obstruction of justice had taken place here, particularly in conjunction with a whole lot of other activity that he engaged in with respect to Comey and with respect to law enforcement and the Russia investigation more generally. And the discussion about
0: Michael Flynn, and a, off that.
1: A whole bunch of interactions. And yet... If you were a responsible prosecutor looking at exploring that inference, you would want to see every scrap of paper that the White House generated. You would want to talk to everybody who interacted with the president, either from the FBI side or from the White House side. And you would want a very holistic picture of of what had happened before you made a judgment about whether an obstruction had taken place. And that is precisely, as I understand it, what the Mueller crowd is working on right now.
0: But my question is, imagine what could be out there, even hypothetically, that might be exculpatory.
1: Okay, so there's, there's at least two categories of information that I think is potentially exculpatory on the criminal side, though I'm not sure it's exculpatory to a reasonable member of Congress trying to decide whether to consider this pattern of behavior to be an impeachable offense. That's a sort of a different analytical. But one is, uh, if you read the entire Lester Holt interview, um, Trump actually says more than one thing, as is his want, about uh, Why he did what he did. And he definitely said that the Russia investigation was on his mind. But he also said the FBI was in turmoil and he was just trying to do it right. He also said that he was um, just he was really concerned to have the Russia investigation done right. And he knew he might even lengthen it by firing Comey, but he just wanted to do the right thing. And so, you know, one question you might have is whether given the diversity of the president's comments, you actually have enough of a mixed picture that you couldn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was for a corrupt reason. So that's one possibility.
0: That's, of course, if you credit all those other reasons and assign them sort of equal value.
1: Correct. And that's also, that puts a premium on a second body of data, which is, which of those reasons does the underlying documents and subsidiary testimony of people Trump would have been talking to at the time support? Uh, The second possibility, and this is, I think, something that White House lawyers have kind of teased to the press may be a component of their defense argument, but I think it may have some legs, actually – you know, the president appears to have been very angry at Jim for not having not being willing to say publicly that he wasn't under investigation, which Jim uh, testified himself that he had told the president uh, on uh, a number of occasions in their uh, individual communications. Now, so if you fire somebody not to interfere with the investigation, but because you're pissed off at him for not saying publicly that you are not the subject of an investigation, uh, I would consider that grossly inappropriate behavior. And I would be very comfortable Uh, thinking that a member of Congress should should consider that as part of his uh, evaluation of presidential fitness. But it's not clear to me that it interacts with the obstruction statutes, uh, you know, in a fashion that would be obviously criminal.
0: Let me ask you this. So suppose the only reason that there was evidence of was Trump was angry that Comey wouldn't publicly declare that Trump was not under investigation. That's all you had. You would agree no criminal obstruction probably. I think that's right. Now, what if there were two reasons for the president firing Jim Comey? One was he was upset that Comey didn't say publicly the president wasn't under investigation. And the other was he didn't like the Russia investigation and he would have preferred it to be over. They're both in the president's mind and and a jury, hypothetical jury in the future would be presented with both of those things. Is that obstruction or not?
1: So I think the answer, uh, you're you're the former federal prosecutor. I know, but I got you here (laughs) as a guest. I think the answer to that question is it's a it's a jury question. If you can convince a jury that a substantial component of of the the motivation uh, was was a corrupt criminal state of mind, it is not precluded as a matter of law to indict that as an obstruction. On the other hand, you are looking at a process as a prosecutor in that situation uh, at a at a factual environment in which the defendant has a very viable defense that says no this this thing that you're treating as the reason the specific intent is just noise the real intent is this for which there's a lot of evidence he could generate in the record
0: look this comes up in our public corruption prosecutions all the time Uh, there's evidence that someone voted for a bill for example because they got some benefit as a quid quid pro quo. And their defense always is, well, no, that bill also was to the benefit of my constituents and it was consistent with my views. And so you have this mixed motive there thing too. And there, the law is very clear and we proceeded that if if some part of your decision-making was the quid pro quo, was for the benefit of some financial gain to yourself that you put in your pocket then it's not enough that it otherwise was... In other words, we we would argue that what could be better than getting paid for doing something you were going to do anyway? That's not a defense. And here you're right. My view is it would just be more complicated. You'd have to be able to assess how much weight you give to the one reason versus the other reason, and then whether or not it's appropriate to proceed against someone when it's hard to figure out how much weight to attach to those reasons because it's something that's in someone's brain And you have a particularly interesting brain when you're talking about Donald Trump.
1: Right. And I think here is where we know of certain ancillary bodies of evidence that I think are extremely important in being probative of the president's state of mind. And one of them is this uh, uh, not yet public, but someday it will surely become public Bedminster memo in which the president the weekend before the firing uh, goes and plays golf and basically dictates to uh, Stephen Miller a letter that he wants to send firing jim and uh This is apparently a lengthy document that amounts to something of a rant um, you, you
0: don 't think it was a it was a measured sane document along the lines of the magna carta well let's let 's just say that
1: that is not the way it has been characterized in the reporting about it. So I think, you know, if you're thinking about the original understanding of the president's state of mind, this document before Rod Rosenstein, who is reported to have read it and said, you don't want to send this, I'll write you a
0: different memo. Rod Rosenstein being the then still deputy attorney general of the United States. Correct.
1: Um, So... That document, I think, gives a lot of probable insight into what the president was actually thinking. And I would think if you're a prosecutor, you want to study very carefully, not merely what was said in that document, but also the accounts of the exact sequence of events that led to the firing to understand how it relates to these prior instances in which uh, Comey felt threatened or f- felt pressured by the president, and these prior instances in which the president behaved very, very strangely vis-a-vis a pending law enforcement matter that was before his FBI director.
0: There are a lot of people who are in government now about whom the president says terrible things and intimidates them and mocks them, some of whom have played along, and some of whom you wonder how much they're not playing along behind the scenes. I want to take you through a series of people and ask you your view in one sentence if they should resign or not. Rod Rosenstein.
1: I have written that Rod Rosenstein should resign. I say that with a heavy heart. I've known Rod for uh, for for 20 years, and uh, it's somebody I've always thought highly of. I do think that subsequent to my saying that about him, he has behaved pretty honorably over the last few months, and so I'm not sure that I'm I'm not sure that in retrospect I'm not glad he did not take my advice. Like triple negative there. Yeah. Okay. But uh, <laughs> so yeah, complicated case. Should Attorney General Jeff Sessions resign? Um, look. I think a man of honor in his position would have resigned. Uh, When the president talks about you that way, you know, if my boss, Strobe Talbot, current boss or future boss, John Allen, ever talks about me the way the president has talked about Jeff Sessions, I'm not coming to work the next day. That said, would it be a good thing for the country if Jeff Sessions resigned tomorrow? Probably not. I mean, the result of Sessions's resignation would be, you know, a vacancy in which which would lead to a lot of weirdness and uncertainty about the protection of the Mueller investigation, right? In
0: other words, the new attorney general would not necessarily be recused from that and would come in above Rod Rosenstein, who's the putative head of the investigation.
1: Exactly. And Trump has made clear that he regards part of the function of the attorney general as protecting him from that investigation. So the result is that we have a weird constellation where Sessions is, but rec- by the fact of Sessions' recusal and the fact of Rosenstein's having re- appointed Mueller, we have a degree of protection for the the for the Mueller investigation that would not necessarily exist if you removed either Sessions or Rosenstein. Should Rex Tillerson resign? I would not serve another day
0: if I were Rex Tillerson. Same principles, man of honor.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I I think Rex Tillerson is um is you know, the question of how much day-to-day humiliation a person should should tolerate uh, from the president is one that's really ultimately between them and their consciences. I don't think Rex Tillerson has done anything dishonorable that demands his resignation. I just don't understand why anybody would want to subject themselves to that.
0: I want to move on to some...
1: You didn't ask me about General Mattis. You know, because I want <laughs> running of, all right, Please okay. ask all right. me about General Mattis. How about General Mattis? General Mattis should not resign under any circumstances. It is essential to the national security of the United States that we have a uh, head of the Defense Department in whom people can repose confidence and to act as an insulation between the president and and the day to day operations of the U.S. military.
0: As 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 Bob Corker, Senator Bob Corker has said, you know, protecting us from chaos. Yes. Uh, Okay, since we're continuing the list, McMaster, General McMaster.
1: Um, H.R. McMaster is in a very difficult position, and I would not trade places with him in a 100 years. I'm very glad he is there rather than General Flynn.
0: Amen. (laughs) But you once said, um, you know, I don't need any kind of resistance. And you said also, the day we have sane government again, including, by the way, sane conservative government... I'm going back to being an apologist for the national security state. Yep. What do you mean by that? So, look, I I mean,
1: I understand that a lot of people who tweet under the hashtag resistance, uh, who think of themselves as uh, the left and who think of the opposition as a kind of seamlessly connected with a kind of liberal politics or a leftist politics. uh, And I don't think about it that way. I actually think the days in which, you know, the ACLU and I spent a lot of time butting heads together over the issues that we butted heads over, like Guantanamo, like drone strikes, like uh, surveillance authorities, that's a healthy environment in which Jamil Jaffer or Steve Vladek and I are arguing all the time over those issues. Today, uh, I don't find a lot of cause. To, it's not that I don't agree. It's not that I've come to agree with them about all those issues or that they've come to agree with me. And what is it? It's that there is an antecedent set of democratic concerns and that faced with a frankly undemocratic and not decent political movement, a group of conservatives and a group of liberals find themselves sounding indistinguishable from one another. And they've all noticed that, by the way. It's not that the Bill Crystals and David Frums of the world have stopped believing uh, things that make them politically different from you or that you've stopped believing things that make you different from them. Right. But I think there's been a pretty wide agreement that there are this deep set of antecedent values. So So,
0: what are, so let's talk about those. Um, top three Antecedent values.
1: Okay. Top three. First of all, decency. Um, (laughs) Like, you know, I I think we we actually, we try to develop a, a sort of highfalutin vocabulary for this. But one of the things that's so objectionable about Donald Trump is that he's not decent. He's nasty and he's, like, mean. Um, While
0: also accusing other people of being nasty and mean. I think, exactly. I think, didn't you call Hillary Clinton nasty?
1: Yes. And and I think that, you know, th- that general sense that, that that there's a limit to the rough and tumble of politics, that you shouldn't lie constantly. Everybody accepts that politicians <laughs> lie a bit, right. right? Right. That we stretch the truth. Like, what's the that, quote?
0: Like, per day? Like, 7? How, how, how about if
1: you have to ask the question, it's too many? Yeah. Okay, if if the um, you know there's a the concept in in law is that there's a presumption of regularity that attaches to an executive action, right? How about if if you lie so much that no one will attach a presumption of regularity to what you do or say, Uh, you're lying way too much.
0: And and that's that's a non-ideological, non-partisan value. Yes, the number one is decency. My my favorite quote by Kurt Vonnegut goes something like this: "A little less love." A little more common decency.
1: Fair enough. I I buy it. Um, Second value. Second value, uh, institutions and their functions. You've made this point repeatedly on your podcast about uh, the Justice Department and prosecutorial institutions and investigative institutions. That was a concern that I had about Trump early in the campaign. I wrote a set of posts about about, uh, Trump and the powers of the presidency, and the first one Uh, was focused on exactly that problem, the problem of prosecutorial discretion. You can play out the same concern over the performance of a bunch of other, uh, particularly intelligence uh, agencies, but the basic institutional functioning of government in a fashion that is consistent with an oath of office to preserve and protect the Constitution, I don't think there's any left-right valence to that concern. Uh, it's a concern that flows out of the the words and behavior of the individual uh, person of the president. Third value. Third value is respect for the substantive protections of the Constitution and to a, a certain degree, the law beyond the Constitution. We, we have a president of the United States who the other day unself consciously said that it was terrible that we have a First Amendment and that <laughs> you know that that NBC gets to say on television what they want to and he's in one way or another said the same thing about the Washington Post over and over again and and other newspapers
0: I want I want to ask you about um, about Russia and specifically about Vladimir Putin who a lot of people have uh, concerns about uh, most rational I think observers in the United States have concerns about the way he runs his country. There's one person who never criticizes him and that man is Donald Trump. You, by the way, among the the many aspects of your uh, bio that are uh, admirable and impressive, you're a black belt in Taekwondo. And in Aikido. I'm a black belt in neither of those things. I know it shocks you to hear that. But you have- It's never too late to start uh, (laughs) Trump. I'm an old man now. But you have challenged Vladimir Putin to fight. And I just want to read what you have written about Uh, with respect to your challenge to Vladimir Putin. And you have written, So let me be clear, this is not a joke. I am prepared to meet Putin mano a mano, anytime, any place, where he lacks the jurisdiction to have me arrested. So, that's smart. I'm flexible about the style, the rules of the fight, and just about everything else. I am sure the Kremlin and I can work out all details once we agree on the basic principle. Putin needs either to fight this, referring to yourself, this reasonably well-trained but not especially expert middle-aged desk worker in a situation in which I'm actually allowed to win without fear of reprisal, or he should face condemnation worldwide as a wuss and a phony.
1: So this challenge to Putin long predates Trump. I have long been offended by the way Putin uses martial arts videos to as a propaganda device to create a kind of aura of hypermasculinity and i think that this is a a part of his domestic bullying deeply related to the mistreatment of the lgbt community domestically and the menacing of neighbors uh, internationally and one of the things that troubles me about it is that this kind of propaganda actually works And if you bombard the public over time with lots of manly videos of yourself uh, throwing people sweating in the ring and, uh, you know, scoring hockey goals and carrying a tiger, uh, it actually does affect the way people understand you. But, But on
0: the range of things, just to push back a little bit, on the range of things to be offended by with respect to Vladimir Putin... Are, you know, these staged fights where he's shirtless, are they they high up on the list? And isn't that a little bit more like Kim Jong-un getting the hole-in-one every time he plays golf?
1: Um, So I agree that if that were all he did, there would be nothing to talk about. It would just be an eccentricity. And the trouble is that cults of personality require the cult. And this is a component of the cult. And it's a component of the cult that people actually believe at some level. So when I posted this, first started tweeting about it, that Putin should fight me, a lot of people would call me up or, you know, write me these private notes that like, you know, he's really good. (laughs) You you know,
0: you might get beaten up. And what you you Um, said, no, I can kick his ass. Yeah. No, I'm, I, I, I'm look, I'm
1: almost 20 years younger than Putin. Uh, You look good. I I, I, I must say. I don't doubt that he once was a very fine judo practitioner, but I don't, actually believe he'd last a minute in the ring with me.
0: Um, and Can I tell you, like, so Ben Wittes' trash talk is the best trash talk?
1: I'm just telling you. I'm, I'm, this is my objective analysis. Um, I think if if Putin and I went a few rounds, it would not end well for him. How many rounds do you think it would take? I think I could finish him pretty quick. One round. One round. Let me tell you how it would actually go, okay? So Putin's trained in judo. To, to, to throw somebody in judo, you actually have to grab him right? The moment he got close enough to grab me, I would sidekick him in the chest and we'd be done. Well, how do you defend against a sidekick in the chest? Uh, Well, you have to be fast enough to not be there when when the foot arrives. Is he bigger than you? Uh, I think we're... uh, He's not huge, Um, but I'm just just really confident in a one-on-one, mano-a-mano with Putin. I'm going to be fine.
0: So you have made very clear how any fight between you and Putin will end. My question to you is, how do you think the Trump presidency will end?
1: I got out of the prediction business with respect to Donald Trump a long time ago. I didn't think it was possible for him to get the nomination. He got the nomination. I certainly didn't think it was possible for him to win the presidency. Uh, And I took that possibility, by the way, much more seriously than most people did. But I didn't think it was possible and he won. And I would, if you had told me that somebody would have the disaster of a first year in office that he's had in terms of any conventional performance metric and have a 37, 38, 39% approval rating that appears to be relatively stable, I would have said you were insane. And that is the reality in which we're living. So I do not uh, do predictions about Donald Trump. Um, What I will say is that. Objectively, he has a very difficult set of legal problems ahead of him. Those problems are manageable on the congressional side for as long as his party controls the Congress and chooses to tolerate him, which uh, the Republican Party appears to be willing to do. They are much less manageable if you imagine a relatively small swing in the House of Representatives a year from now. And so I think he's got a very tough road ahead of him, both from Bob Mueller potentially and from Congress potentially. And I don't beyond that flatter myself that I have any crystal ball worth looking into.
0: Fair enough. Benjamin Wittes, thank you for being with us. Pleasure to be here. So, as we come to the end of the show, this is the point where I talk about something in the news that struck me personally in some way. In this past week, it's a story out of Biloxi, Mississippi, and you may have read that in that school district, folks there decided, in their inimitable wisdom, to ban a particular book, it's *To Kill a Mockingbird* by Harper Lee. And what I read was it was being banned because it made some people uncomfortable. That the language in the book made some people uncomfortable. Now, to be sure, there is difficult language. There are difficult topics. It's about racism in the South uh, decades ago. But more importantly, the book is about how justice is done, how underdogs should be uh, supported, and how you know, people need to be clear-eyed about race and division in America. And I, w- I will tell you a couple of things. You know, I-, I became a lawyer for a lot of reasons. But I read two books when I was a child that made me desperately want to go into the law. One of those books was Inherit the Wind, which I urge everyone to read. And the other book was To Kill a Mockingbird. And I think there are untold numbers of people who had their eyes opened to issues of racial injustice and inequality by reading that book. And, and I get that some of the language may be difficult. And look, when people say the point of the book is to make people uncomfortable, that's not the end goal, just discomfort. Um, there's lots of books that can make you uncomfortable but teach you nothing. The point of the discomfort in that book like it is in a lot of Mark Twain's books that have difficult language as well, is to get people through a process in their minds where they become more thoughtful, open-minded, and aware of issues in the country and in society so they become wiser, smarter, and more tolerant about it. That's the point of the discomfort of this book. I will note, by the way, that apparently To Kill a Mockingbird has been banned many times from many school districts over the years. And I came across another story talking about how to Kill a Mockingbird was banned out of a school district in Virginia 51 years ago. And one of the people who objected to that was the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee. She wrote a letter to the editor, quote, "...recently I have received echoes down this way of the Hanover County School Board's activities, and what I've heard makes me wonder if any of its members can read." Close quote. In some ways, I think that same question could be asked of the people in Biloxi, Mississippi. Life is difficult. Life is complicated. Justice is difficult. Justice is complicated. And if we can't have conversations about these things in the same way that hopefully we can have conversations about people taking a knee in the NFL, then I think we've got a lot of trouble. So hopefully that decision will be rescinded. And in the meantime, if you haven't read it, go out and buy To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ben Wittes. And thank you for listening. And as always, thanks for all the great reviews on Apple Podcasts. Keep them coming. If you have questions about news, politics, justice, I want to answer them. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jake McCobie, and Jeff Eisenman. We have new episodes coming for you every Thursday. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7 24/7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.